War. By its very nature, war is a destructive and deadly affair that has been perfected to a fine science by mankind. It is a curious dichotomy of humanity that while we express our utter distaste for war, we seem so ready to embrace it and its consequences for all concerned. However, if we examine history more closely, we find that there are odd exceptions in this ever-unfolding story of warfare. Conflicts in which there were no casualties. So-called bloodless wars. Like any shooting war, a bloodless war can take on many forms and is not always declared by one side or the other. It simply comes into being as two sides with two opposing views clash, often regarding territory and resources. Often, bloodless wars are seen as an alternative to actual shooting wars and are conducted as such, with either side engaging in acts of vandalism or in some way inhibiting the affairs of the other without firing weapons. Some bloodless wars are predominantly fought by countries and states at the negotiating table, while backed up with some show of force designed to warn an opponent that they are prepared to defend themselves. In today's episode, we are going to examine three bloodless conflicts throughout history, explore their origin, and examine how they were conducted and prevented from escalating further. For it is true to say that every war in history was bloodless until the first shot was fired. Welcome to Wars of the World. The United States of America, as its name implies, is a country composed of smaller states, each with their own laws, economies, and cultures, unified under a federal government. However, the United States in its current form did not emerge overnight, and its formation was at times wrought with conflict between the states, culminating of course in the American Civil War. In 1818, the territory known as Missouri applied for state status within the United States, However, there were concerns amongst other states, particularly nearby Wisconsin, over the influence this new state might wield, given that it was about to become the largest single state in the country. Eventually, a convention was held to determine the line of separation between the states, and was based on the 1816 survey conducted by John C. Sullivan. However, in 1837, Missouri elected to have the Sullivan Line, as it was called, resurveyed with the intention of extending its border further north to absorb the region's rich honeybee population. Honey being a lucrative commodity at the time, and one that would go a long way to helping shore up the state's economy. The new survey, conducted by one J.C. Brown, was wrought with errors, some concerning the methods originally employed by Sullivan and the interpretation of his findings, and some of Brown's own doing such as confusing Magnetic North with True North. Consequently, the new state line produced by Brown was at times some 13 miles further north than Sullivan's. Missouri elected to pass the new boundary into their state law, but of course, Wisconsin protested and took the matter to the federal government, who appeared to drag their heels when coming up with a solution. 
To further complicate matters, settlers who had moved into this region were campaigning to be recognized as an independent state, having been granted territory status on January 4, 1838, laying the foundation for the state of Iowa, which was now Missouri's northern neighbor. But the matter over the border dispute remained. Eventually, it was decided that another survey, this time commissioned by the federal government but involving delegates from both states, would be the only way to determine the border. But Missouri refused to cooperate, standing by Brown's survey. The new survey was conducted through the remainder of 1838, being delayed by poor weather and sickness among the delegates. But instead of settling the matter, it only further confused things, stating that there were now four possible border lines, including the Brown and Sullivan ones. Missouri Governor Lilburn Boggs was having none of it, and ordered his officials to impose Missouri law upon the disputed area up to Brown's line. However, many of the settlers in the area had either moved south from Iowa or preferred to come under Iowa's authority, particularly when it concerned the matter of slavery, which was illegal in Iowa, but not in Missouri. Iowa's governor, Robert Lucas, felt he was left with no choice but to order his own civil servants and law enforcement into the region and expel any Missouri officials past the Sullivan Line, which was still technically the agreed line of separation. By the beginning of 1839, Factions quickly emerged in the disputed areas loyal to one state or the other. These factions soon began arming themselves, forming into militias ready to fight should the need arise. Meanwhile, both Boggs and Lucas continued to assert their legal rights over the disputed area, and when Missouri Sheriff Uriah S. Gregory attempted to collect taxes from settlers, he was arrested and expelled by Iowan Sheriff Henry Heffelman. The situation had ended peacefully, but Heffelman knew Gregory would be back and likely accompanied by armed deputies, so he requested clarification on how he was to conduct himself in any future encounters. Lucas was less than helpful when he simply told him to use his best judgment. The two men, who were in a strange way the sheriff of the same piece of land but in different states, met again along with locals from both sides in an attempt to reach a peaceful settlement, at least in the short term. The only viable course of action seen by the cooler heads involved was for the federal government to have jurisdiction over the region until an agreement was reached, but this was rejected by some of the more impassioned participants in the meeting. Further meetings also failed to reach an agreement, and the disputed area was now a powder keg of violence, just waiting for the spark to be ignited. That spark appeared to come when three of the trees containing the sought-after bees and their honey were illegally cut down. The Iowan authorities believed that a Missouri man was responsible and saw it as an affront to them, although just who actually was responsible remains debated. The situation was exacerbated when again, Sheriff Gregory was arrested by Hoffman for attempting to collect taxes in the area. On both sides, there were now those baying for blood, feeling they were personally under attack. And in early December of 1839 in Clark County, Missouri, 2,000 men rallied together and marched northward, raiding a store for supplies on the way. Alarmed by this, Lucas ordered his own men in Iowa to raise an equivalent force to meet them head on, but they were only able to raise 1,200 armed men who had to provide their own weapons, food, and clothing. At this point in the crisis, both sides viewed themselves in a de facto state of war, and perhaps realizing just how far they had let the situation get out of control, Leaders on both sides began frantic negotiations to avoid bloodshed. 
Meanwhile, the outnumbered Iowans established a defensive line in an effort to hold off the invading Missouri militia. Then on December 12th, it was announced that an agreement had been made to call off the militia groups and settle the dispute in court. However, it seems the message was lost on its way to the Iowan troops, who could see the Missouri fighters apparently retreating in the distance. It was only after an Iowan delegation was sent under a flag of truce to their lines to ask them to state their intentions that they learned of the agreement. The Missouri militia obeyed the instruction to stand down, but were furious with Boggs, even going as far as to kill a deer and use it to build an effigy of him, labeling him as a traitor. The war over the honey, as both sides saw it, was over, and thankfully no blood was spilled. But the dispute would take nearly a decade to settle, with the US Congress eventually deciding that the original Sullivan Line was to be the official border. The aftermath of World War II and the withdrawal of the British Empire left the Asian subcontinent with numerous territorial disputes amongst the newly independent nations, particularly concerning India. Along its northern frontier, in the Kashmir region, India has come into repeated conflict with Pakistan, over which it holds a numerical advantage, which it has used to suppress Pakistani ambitions in the region. However, India cannot so easily address its disputes with China concerning the Depsang Plains and Arunachal Pradesh, the latter of which is referred to on Chinese maps as South Tibet. These disputes came to a head in 1962, when China and India fought a brief but bloody war that saw a Chinese military victory, but also failed to settle the border question. By the early 1980s, the strategic situation had changed dramatically, as India had become a burgeoning regional military superpower, having defeated Pakistan in two major conflicts and built up a modern and advanced military force, thanks largely to support from the Soviet Union, which was itself at odds with China by this time. Furthermore, India now had a nuclear weapons program, and many of its commanders were veterans of the 1962 conflict, who swore to take a much tougher stance with their Chinese opponents in the future. In 1984, India established an observation point on the bank of the Sundarong Chu, a tributary of the Nyamjang Chu River that flows along the disputed Sino-Indian border in order to monitor Chinese military activity. The observation post was only manned in the summer, as this was seen as the most likely time China would ever attack given the harsh winter weather. In 1986, the Indian troops were alerted to Chinese troops in the Wangdong area by local farmers, and they immediately set out to investigate. This area was so difficult to cross that it took them over four days to reach it, but upon arriving, they monitored the construction of fixed structures and a helipad on land they claimed as Indian territory, sparking a diplomatic crisis. This sent alarm bells ringing for many in New Delhi. The territory was recognized as being in dispute, but the Indian government had not given up its claim. Therefore, the Chinese incursion and construction was effectively an act of war. The question now was what to do about it. Giving up their claim on the territory was not an option, while going to war was the final one. A diplomatic effort was instigated with the United States helping to at very least open a dialogue between Delhi and Beijing to try and resolve the growing crisis. The Indian government proposed that if China stopped its construction program and withdrew, India would similarly withdraw from the observation post and pledged not to reoccupy it, a deal that to many observers seemed fair. 
However, China not only refused the offer, but China's leader told US Defense Secretary Kasper Weinberger in a meeting that China was going to have to teach India a lesson like it had done in 1962. Back in India, the Indian army was equally determined to teach the Chinese that 1962 was a long time ago. The new Indian chief of the army, General Sundarji, had barely been in the post a year after his predecessor had been assassinated, and yet his presence had been felt immediately amongst the army ranks. He sensed a deterioration in the army's standards and sought to reinvigorate them so they would be ready to meet any threats, be it from Pakistan or China. This crisis seemed to offer him that opportunity. As the situation appeared to be escalating in early 1987, he proposed moving some 50,000 men into the disputed area under the guise of a military logistical exercise dubbed Operation Checkerboard. Calling it an exercise had certain political benefits, for it allowed India to display its ability to mobilize a massive military force quickly and effectively across the difficult high-altitude terrain. This would afford them significant capital at the negotiating table. It also allowed India to test the response from both the United States and Soviet Union, who were monitoring the situation closely without escalating it, although it was clear to all that the force involved was ready to fight the Chinese if the standoff turned hot. Beginning in spring of 1987, key to Operation Checkerboard were the recently acquired fleet of Mil Mi-26 very heavy lift helicopters the Indian Air Force had acquired from the Soviet Union. Deploying along what was now an unofficial border in northeast India, in several places the Indian and Chinese troops were so close to one another that they literally stood face to face with their weapons loaded. This was especially concerning for the diplomatic efforts, for it would only take one frightened soldier on either side to fire his gun and start a brutal war. Then, in May of 1987, as part of a planned visit to North Korea by the Indian Minister of External Affairs, N.D. Tawari, the minister and his delegation stopped off in Beijing, where he told the Chinese government that New Delhi had no intention of escalating the situation further. China reciprocated the same sentiment, and the first positive moves to ending the crisis were made. Both sides began cautiously withdrawing their troops and made more proactive efforts to settle the territorial disputes, peacefully culminating in a visit by Indian Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi to Beijing in 1988. Both sides have since then reached several agreements on maintaining peace and security in the region. For India, the standoff was seen as a significant victory. The Indian armed forces demonstrated both their prowess and resolve against one of the world's major powers, and was a significant factor in achieving a peaceful de-escalation. Additionally, China was now forced to give India the respect New Delhi craved from Beijing since the war in 1962. Although China continues to work closely with Pakistan on issues such as defense, much to the concern of many Indians. There are many aspects of human civilization that we can see replicated in nature. However, one thing that seems unique to humanity is bureaucracy. Regardless of how you feel about paperwork, the ability to record information, and especially agreements between individuals and groups, is one of the cornerstones of civilization, as it holds people to account and allows us to track resources and services we have invested in. Paperwork has been used to both start and end countless wars throughout history, leading to the phrase that the pen is mightier than the sword. 
However, the problem with this paper trail through history and the many legal processes that they create is that sometimes what is on the page doesn't translate into reality. And thus we come upon the curious notion of the paper wars, conflicts that exist almost entirely in writing. In the opening years of the 19th century, Europe was plunged into the Napoleonic Wars, so named because the main instigator was France, led by Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. During the conflict, Great Britain was allied with Sweden against France, while at the same time was engaged in a conflict with Imperial Russia over territory in modern-day Finland. The conflict was concluded in 1809 and was a Russian victory, and with Russia at that time being allied with Napoleon, Moscow forced Sweden to seek peace with France. After a series of unfavorable negotiations, Sweden signed the Treaty of Paris on November 6, 1810 which ended hostilities between the two, but one of Napoleon's stipulations was that Sweden join the continental blockade of Great Britain. This would require Sweden to declare war on Great Britain and seize British ships. Thus began the Anglo-Swedish War. However, Sweden had little intention of enforcing the agreement, and British ships continued to use Swedish ports, unhindered by their new enemy, and trading between the two countries continued. The war would end almost two years later, when peace negotiations were incorporated with those between Britain and Russia without a single shot or even a military act having been carried out by one side against the other. By this time, Sweden and France were again at odds over a French invasion of Swedish Pomerania in modern-day Germany and Poland, so it served Sweden to renew their old camaraderie with Britain. While bloodless between the belligerents, a tragic incident did occur related to the paper war concerning the refusal of a group of farmers in Sweden to accept conscription into the army. Troops were used to disperse them, and 30 men were killed, although given the tensions in Europe at the time, this likely would have happened anyway. Interestingly, this was not the only paper war that was to emerge as a result of the Napoleonic Wars. France was supported by Spain and Denmark until Napoleon invaded the Iberian Peninsula, by which time 13,000 Spanish troops were based in Denmark and now found themselves in enemy territory. In the spirit of defiance and showing support for their troops, the small Spanish municipality of Huesca in southern Spain took it upon itself to declare war on Denmark on November 11, 1809. This largely symbolic gesture was then forgotten about, as events on the continent overshadowed it, until a local historian discovered the declaration in 1981. On November 11th of that year, the local mayor met with the Danish ambassador to Spain, and the two formally ended the war. Lasting exactly 172 years, the war is technically the longest conflict in the history of Spain, although again, one in which not a single shot was ever fired. However, this bizarre tale pales in comparison to the story of the paper war that existed between the Netherlands and a small island off the coast of Cornwall, England. Now, before we delve into this story, in that while a formal peace was reached, the existence of an original declaration is in dispute, as we will soon see. The tale begins during the English Civil War, which raged between 1642 and 1651, when Oliver Cromwell led the parliamentarians to victory against the Royalists under King Charles II. One of the last vestiges of Royalist control was Cornwall in southwest England, until even here they were forced to retreat to the Isles of Scilly, some 24 miles offshore. 
At the same time, the Netherlands had become allied to the parliamentarians after recognizing they would be victorious. And thus, in response, the surviving Royalist Navy began plundering Dutch merchant ships near the Isles. On March 30th, 1651, Lieutenant Admiral Trump sailed to the Isles of Scilly and demanded Dutch ships, their cargo and crews be handed over to him. Angered by this, the Admiral declared war on the Isles of Scilly on behalf of the Netherlands, specifying the archipelago in his declaration so as not to unintentionally declare war on his English parliamentarian allies. And this declaration was repeated in writing by parliamentarian lawyer Sir Bulstrode Whitlock, arguably formalizing the declaration beyond the Admiral's word. Before any firing could occur, however, the Royalists surrendered to the Parliamentarians, ending the Civil War. But this left the Admiral's declaration in a state of legal limbo. While his declaration was supported at home, the Dutch government were unclear of their legal right to formally declare war on just one part of a country, and so no formal declaration of peace was ever made. With the Royalists defeated and their threat to Dutch ships over, few gave it a second thought. But it still raised an interesting question as to whether, in law, the Admiral's declaration was legally binding. The tale became something of a fun story told to tourists by the locals on the Isles, but it was enough to catch the interest of Roy Duncan, a historian and chairman of the Isles of Scilly Council. In 1986, he wrote to the Dutch government for clarification on whether or not a peace had been declared between them and the Isles of Scilly. The response was that, on their side, no such peace had been declared, but equally there was no formal declaration of war either, although they did confirm that the Admiral believed he had conducted the proper declaration within his authority at that time. Therefore, it was decided that the Netherlands and the Isles of Scilly were in a state of war, and that all efforts should be made to resolve the conflict peacefully. At least, that was the line jokingly retold. In reality, it was little more than a gesture of goodwill from both parties, and on April 17, 1986, a Dutch ambassador arrived on the Isles to formally conduct the peace agreement. The agreement brought to an end a bloodless war that lasted a staggering 335 years. Although the legality of the declaration remains questionable, it remains a fun story told about the otherwise unassumingly peaceful Isles of Scilly, only now with a conclusion. And there you have some of the most notable bloodless wars throughout history. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.